Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 238, The Patchwork of War. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Ian, James, and Paul for signing up already. The sons of Rodri were in a difficult position. Their father had been a powerful ruler in Britain. He was a man who had gained vast swaths of territory for his dynasty, and was one of the few kings in British history that could claim the title of the Great. But when he died, there was a period of instability. War had threatened to turn his kingdom, the mighty kingdom of Gwyneth, into nothing more than a Mercian subkingdom. However, Rodri's sons proved to be just as ferocious as their father, and they quickly re-established the independence of North Wales and set their confederation of kingdoms on a path for further expansion. But recent events have presented them with a significant barrier to their ambitions. Namely, King Hypheth of Devid, a king and kingdom that seemed ripe for annexation, had just submitted to the authority of King Alfred of Wessex. And it wasn't just King Hypheth. The kings of Brecknock, Gwent, and Glywissing had all followed suit. So rather than having the Western kingdoms united under their rule, now almost half of the West was under the rule of their age-old enemies, the Saxons. And those same Saxons had already absorbed many of their Anglican neighbors. Consequently, rather than strengthening their hold on the West, now the sons of Rodri were watching massive portions of southern Britain come under the rule of the very same people who Gildas felt were the scourge of God and who let St. Augustine curse them all those years ago. Clearly, their hopes of expansion had come to an end. But there was a larger issue here. This situation had the possibility of ending the independence of the kings of North Wales. If Hyfath and his compatriots wanted revenge, they might be able to convince Alfred to bring war upon North Wales in exchange for their fealty. And if that happened, all of a sudden King Anarod of Gwyneth as well as his brothers could find themselves facing off with a terrifying combined army of the southern Welsh and Saxons. Furthermore, this anxiety was likely exacerbated by the fact that Athelred of Mercia, the war leader who they called Edred Longhair, had recently submitted to Alfred and declared that he would serve as his elderman. And the timing and sequence of all of this, as you know, is a little bit soupy. But this submission would have been a huge deal for Gwyneth, because there was no love lost between the sons of Rodri and this long-haired Mercian. The last time that Athelred had met with the armies of North Wales was at the Battle of Conway. And that fight was a point of pride for Gwyneth but not so much for Mercia. In fact, the Welsh victory was so complete that following that battle, Mercian ambitions into North Wales halted immediately, and Mercia itself began to fade and contract. The Battle of Conway, which is hardly mentioned in any sources, actually had an incredible impact upon the region's politics. And when it is discussed in the primary records, the Welsh talk about it in terms of divine retribution. This was such a beatdown, it completely restructured local politics. But something troubling happened in the aftermath of that fight. 
Athelred had shown himself to be a leader who was most dangerous when he was pressed. As he responded to this loss with unusual violence directed this time against the Southern Welsh. And as you know from last episode, that was probably a major motivating factor that led those Southern Welsh to Alfred. But the fact that this happened appears to have made an impression all throughout the region. Because based upon the Welsh sources, even based on Asser, it appears that the Welsh view of Mercia was that it was a tyrannical and militaristic kingdom. Gwyneth did not like the Mercians. And yet the Mercians, with the same leader that they were complaining about, were now being annexed into Wessex. And that meant that the court of King Alfred would include yet another enemy of Gwyneth. And it already included the Southern Welsh. So the wolves were circling. And while rumors were probably being spread that this king of Wessex was pious and interested in learning and scholarship, the fact that he brought such a ruthless Mercian leader into his circle had to have worried the Northern Welsh. Things were looking pretty dire in Gwyneth. But the West Saxons weren't the only growing superpower in Britain. There was another group who had repeatedly demonstrated that they could check Anglo-Saxon power. And many times, they did more than just check it. They broke it. This other superpower were the Danes. And so the kings of North Wales began to look to form an alliance. But there's a problem with joining into an alliance with a superpower. And it's this. You're dealing with unequal bargaining power. The superpower has the ability to exploit the weaker nation's desperation and ensure that whatever deal is struck will serve their interests. And typically, kingdoms don't rise to the top of a scrum like this because they give the best back rubs and because they have an altruistic point of view. They get to the top of the heap because they know who to exploit and how and when to exploit them. For examples, just look at what Oswiu and Offa did. The truth is that with the Heptarchy, ruthlessness was often rewarded. It's ugly business, but that's how it goes. And so I imagine that being one of the smaller kingdoms and seeking an alliance with one of the two main power blocks was a bit like going to a loan shark and then agreeing to hand over the deed to your house as collateral. At that point, the question isn't whether you're going to lose your home, it's when. And that's where the sons of Rodri were, trapped in a vice, with the West Saxon hegemony, who could turn on them at any point, and the Danes to the north, which didn't look all that much better but something had to be done. And so Anarod and his brother formed an alliance with King Guthred and the Danes of Jorvik. But I should make it clear that due to the fact that we're not entirely sure about the timing and sequence of many of these key events, we can't say exactly when that happened. And that's critical for working out the political situation that North Wales was in. For example, if this alliance took place shortly after the defeat of the Mercians at Conway, well, it could have been an effort to solidify Gwyneth's independence and to ensure that further war with Mercia was unlikely. Conversely, if this alliance came later, say after Alfred gained the submission of the Southern Welsh, well, it could have been the result of anxiety at that growing power block. And I do suspect that that was the case, but ultimately, we just don't know. But whatever the case, by this point in the story, the sons of Rodri and King Guthred of Jorvik had decided to make common cause. Well, that's not entirely true. 
They had formed some sort of alliance, but the goals of this alliance don't appear to have been all that well defined. And so common cause might have been a bit too much to hope for. But too late to worry about that now, they were in it up to their necks. And so they probably just had to hope for the best. Meanwhile, at around the same time that we have a growing consolidation of power, we also have a rather curious entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And it was so unexpected that the first time I saw it, I thought I might be looking at a mistranslation. The series of entries that lead into it begin rather normally, with basically just a list of travel entries for that army that once occupied Fulham. Just a year-by-year cataloging of where and when that army went, and where they were now occupying and attacking. And spoiler alert, it was mostly Francia. Pretty humdrum stuff when it comes down to it. And yet, right in the middle of the worst Fromer's Guide ever, we have this entry. Quote, Then they sat against the army at London. And there, with the favor of God, they were very successful after the performance of their vows. End quote. And if you're wondering what's going on there, you're not alone. That threw me for a loop as well. And on first glance, you might think that the they that's being referred to there is the Viking Roadshow. However, from the context of the full entry, they is clearly Alfred and his supporters. And because this entry would have taken place soon after Athelred's submission, many scholars have taken they to mean that it was a combined West Saxon and Mercian operation. And it's also largely agreed that sat against is referring to a siege. And we're told that they were very successful in this siege. So, it looks like the West Saxons and Mercians joined together and successfully besieged London. And that's a pretty big development. And given that it's right in the middle of a section in the Chronicle that's basically Olaf the Bloody's Guide to Looting Francia, the first thought I had was that this must be the Euro-tripping army, and that they just randomly decided to return to Britain and vacation for a year in London. But the more I looked into it, And the more scholars I read, the more it became clear that this probably wasn't the case. At least in 883, whoever was in London probably wasn't the same group as who was in Francia. So who was it? Well, that's a difficult question, because there's no prior entry talking about London being lost. Nor is there any mention of a secondary army or anything like that. And those are pretty critical details to leave out. Furthermore, this Siege of London comes right at the end of the entry, almost as an afterthought. The earlier part focuses on how Pope Marinus sent Alfred some wood of the cross, and then how Alfred sent two men to bring alms to Rome, so some pretty heavy ecclesiastical stuff. And then suddenly we have the Siege of London. And adding to the difficulty is the fact that this siege only appears in some versions of the Chronicle. And consequently, as it stands, there's a great deal of debate as to whether or not this actually happened. I mean, it's possible that in 883, Alfred and Athelred attacked London, and then defeated the army that resided there, which I assume would mean the Danes, especially given the indications of divine intervention. But the trouble is that the entries that follow don't indicate that Alfred and Athelred occupied the city. Instead, if we take this version of the Chronicle on face value... Alfred and Athelred spilled blood to take London, and they would have had to spill a lot of blood. And then, after they took it, they, you know, just let it go. They didn't assert any control over it, they just decided to head home. 
which is something that nobody has ever done with London. Today, if you dig deep enough, the soil of London, once you get past all the pavement and spilled beer, is drenched in ancient blood. And that's because a lot of people have wanted to control London. You don't just fight a war to take it and then leave because you think it's too rainy. No one does that. Consequently, many scholars and your friendly local narrator think that this was probably a misdated entry and that the scribes were actually referring to what happened a few years later. So let's talk about that siege of London. It's 885. Alfred and Asser are becoming buddies, though apparently he's also got a wicked fever. English fever, if you ask me. And that Viking field trip I mentioned earlier, it had now split up, and part of it had left Francia. And actually, that was the army that tried to siege Rochester, but got their teeth kicked in by Alfred and his new defense network. So that's where we are. And then, because the Chronicle is the Chronicle... It also fills us in on a bunch of stuff regarding Frankish politics and the dangers of hunting boar when you're the king of Francia. Basically, don't do it unless you want to be gored to death. But the entry for 885 wasn't just a bunch of pig-based life hacks. It also dropped a major bomb. Quote, And that same year, the Danish army in East Anglia violated their peace with King Alfred. End quote. And some of you might be shouting right now, Guthrum, no! And actually, you might be right. It might be Guthrum, no. It's at the very least, Guthrum, maybe? And I say that because version E of the Chronicle has a different take on this. Version E says, quote, And that same year, the Danish army went into East Anglia and violated their peace, end quote. And that's a huge difference. One has the army of East Anglia violating King Alfred's peace, The other has a Danish army going into East Anglia. Two wildly different things. And this is why it pays to have as many primary sources as you can get your hands on. But the point is, maybe it was the Danish army and not East Anglia who violated the peace. Unfortunately, the more I read, the less sure I am of what was happening here. And to complicate matters, very few scholars spend all that much time talking about this violation of peace. Abel skips right over it, I don't think Stenton mentioned it at all. Hunter Blair, Hyam, Merkel, Edwards, no one seems to want to talk about it. And fair enough, Asser doesn't talk about it either. So, this whole thing is a bit of a black hole as to what exactly happened. But here's my best guess as to what these entries tell us. That army of world-traveling Vikings that split up? Well, as you know, their attack at Rochester didn't work, and they legged it. And after they ran off, the Chronicle tells us, quote, The same year, King Alfred sent a fleet from Kent into East Anglia. That sounds like a provocative move for Alfred, and also a bit out of nowhere, especially since he was busy rebuilding his defenses and his educational system. But, from the context, it's possible that he was chasing the fleeing Danes from Rochester. And that would place this entry in line with version E of the Chronicle the version that said the peace was violated by Danes that entered East Anglia. Because maybe, as they ran, they didn't run all that far. And then the Chronicle tells us that, quote, as soon as they came to Stourmouth, there met them 16 ships of the pirates, end quote. So the West Saxons didn't go all that far from their launching point before running into a fleet of Vikings, possibly the same Vikings that they were chasing. Quote, 
and they fought with them, took all their ships, and slew the men, end quote. All right, so now we have an instance of open conflict between the West Saxons and the Danes, and the West Saxons are doing pretty well. But the account continues and tells us that as the West Saxon fleet returned home, quote, with their booty, they met a large fleet of the pirates and fought with them the same day, but the Danes had the victory, end quote. And then, only at the end of that entry, after all of this fighting and after the boar hunting safety tips and discussions of Frankish genealogies and even a talk about eclipses, only then do we get that consequential entry, the one that mentions the violation of peace. And looking at it, I'm inclined to lean towards version E and imagine that they were fighting with the remnants of the Vikings from Francia and that the connection to East Anglia might simply refer to the fact that the army went into East Anglia and occupied part of it after their failure at Rochester. And perhaps they were even a threat to Alfred's godson, Guthrum. However, that is a pure guess. And it's just as possible that Guthrum sat through one mass too many and decided to take up his old hobby, sneak attacks, and that Alfred's fleet was heading up to East Anglia to show Guthrum who his god daddy was. There's no easy answer here. The entry just doesn't tell us all that much, so I really don't know. But let's continue to the following entry for 886, because this is where the Siege of London might happen. Quote, The same year also, King Alfred fortified the city of London, and the whole English nation turned to him, except that part of it which was held captive by the Danes. He then committed the city to the care of Elderman Athelred to hold it under him. End quote. Now, this is the entry where some scholars think that the 883 entry should have been placed. That it was actually in the year 886 when a great siege of London was carried out by the combined forces of Wessex and Mercia. And you can see why they think that, can't you? Depending on how the boundaries were drawn, and depending on when the Treaty of Wedmore was signed, it's not clear who actually would have been controlling London. And if war had fully spilled out between the Danes of East Anglia and the hegemony of Wessex, well, that might have been a good time to seize London if it was previously under the control of the Danes. Conversely, there were multiple fleets of Vikings patrolling around Kent, and it is possible that one of them sailed up the Thames and nicked London. And then Alfred and Athelred had to roll in and take it back. It really is hard to know exactly what was happening here, And it's even harder to know what was happening between East Anglia and Wessex, because the versions of the Chronicle don't agree on it. We don't even know who exactly broke the truce, and who the Danes were that the Chronicle refers to. And I suspect that the reason why finding analyses of these entries was so difficult was because that there are so many missing facts that there isn't much you can say with certainty. And so people were just dodging it. But, regardless of what the instigating factor was, By the end of 886, London was within the West Saxon sphere of influence, and then it was handed over to Athelred of Mercia, who was tasked with rebuilding the old Roman walls and establishing new settlements. At the same time, he was also given similar authority over other lands, including Gloucester and Worcester in Mercia. And two things should jump out at you regarding that. First, Alfred was becoming more comfortable with asserting his royal authority as king of the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, the Chronicle even describes him as king of the Anglican, not under Danish rule. And he certainly was acting like it. 
Gloucester and Worcester were Mercian lands. And here he was giving them to the ruler of Mercia because the ruler of Mercia answered to Alfred. And thus, once you get down to it, those were Alfred's lands. But the second thing to note is that granting Athelred rule over London was an uncharacteristically generous gift. London was a strategically and economically significant location. It wasn't something to give up lightly or just hand over to a foreigner from Mercia. Even if you take into account the bonds that can form in combat and assume that the men have become incredibly close, London and these other territories are still a surprisingly generous gift. And granted, the relationship between Wessex and Mercia was getting closer, but this still seemed a bit extreme. However, something else likely happened at right around this point. The dates are soupy, and it could have happened any time between 882 and 887, but scholars largely agree that it was after the Siege of London, in 886, that Elderman Athelred of Mercia married Athelflad, daughter of Alfred, the same woman who would become the famous Athelflad, Lady of Mercia. And when you start looking at this as a wedding gift, and as a binding between the two dynasties, suddenly the whole London situation starts to make a lot more sense. Another thing that scholars tend to date at around this point in history is the Treaty of Wedmore. That's the treaty that established the borders between Danelaw and Wessex. Now, to be clear, there's an 11-year stretch where this treaty could have been signed. It could be anywhere between 879 and 890. So when scholars date the treaty to 886, know that this is just a guess. But here's the argument behind that guess. If you believe that the events of 885 and 886 were the result of East Anglian aggression, not the result of a separate group of Danes, but specifically something that Guthrum did, well, then a subsequent treaty between Guthrum and Alfred, which defined the borders between Wessex and East Anglia, it starts to make a little more sense. If Guthrum and Alfred were reeling after Rochester, London, and the various naval battles, and they just wanted to put an end to the fighting, maybe this treaty is how they did it. And interestingly, we don't read of any clashes between East Anglia and Wessex in the following year. In fact, the Chronicle doesn't record any warfare in Wessex for another six years. So the scholars who think that this treaty was in response to the events of 885 and 886 might have a point. It's genuinely hard to say exactly how all of this went down and why. But back in Wales, in the courts of King Anarod and his brothers, word of this peace would have been quite worrying. The fighting that broke out in the Saxon territories had ended. And astonishingly, their enemy, Elderman Athelred, had come out of it gaining even more lands and power. And now he was even marrying into King Alfred's family. This situation was turning from bad to worse. And while our sources lack details on the Gwyneth-Northumbrian alliance, Asser tells us that it wasn't going well. Apparently, all Gwyneth was getting out of this deal was a ton of problems and no offers of help. Now, reading between the lines, I suspect that King Guthred of Jorvik had designs on the annexation of Gwyneth, just like Alfred had with Mercia. And these problems that we're hearing about might have just been the result of him working to accomplish that. 
maybe even working to destabilize the kingdoms in North Wales directly. But that being said, given the politics of the South, as well as the reports from Asser, it's likely that King Anarod and his brothers were finding themselves with few places to turn to. The walls were closing in. But while all of this politicking and warfare and tips on boar safety was happening, back in Winchester, Alfred wasn't just tackling matters of court. He was also spending a lot of time studying. You see, Asser, as he had promised, had returned to Alfred. It's thought that he returned in May of 886, so possibly right in the middle of this whole London wedding treaty fiasco. And you have to wonder if Asser was a little bit worried about what he got himself into. Wessex was apparently awash with Danes, naval battles, sieges. This was a far cry from St. David's, where he generally just had to worry about King Hypheth. But here he was, and he had work to do. Alfred had brought him to Wessex for a reason. So, quote, I read to him whatever books he liked, of such he had at hand. For this is his peculiar and most confirmed habit. Both day and night, amid all his other occupations of mind and body, either himself to read books or to listen to the reading of others. End quote. That was Asser's life at court, reading to the king constantly. And apparently, Alfred was really happy with his service because when the agreed upon six month mark came, Alfred kept Asser at his side. And then six months turned to seven months. And then eight months. And Asser was starting to get worried. Quote, When I frequently had sought his permission to return, and had in no way been able to obtain it at length, I had made up my mind, by all means, to demand it. End quote. Alfred was one of the most battle-tested and politically dominant Saxon kings in living memory. And here was Asser making demands. You have to hand it to this monk. He was fearless. And Alfred responded, quote, He called me up to him at twilight on Christmas Eve, and he presented me with two documents in which there was a lengthy list of everything which was in the two monasteries, which are called in Saxon, Congressbury and Banwell. On that same day, he granted those two monasteries to me with all the things which were in them as well as an extremely valuable silk cloak, and a quantity of incense weighing as much as a stout man. He added that the giving of these trifles would not prevent him from giving me greater gifts at a future time. End quote. The gamble paid off. Not only was Asser able to go home, but he was going home rich as hell. And I love how Asser tries to mask all of this as incredible generosity and how Alfred tried to frame the over-the-top gifts as trifles, and overtly stated that if Asser came back, there would be even greater gifts. Even a thousand years later, the insecurity of Alfred comes seeping through the pages. Despite all of his power, he was uniquely vulnerable here. And it's also clear that Alfred was short on trust, and probably for good reason. Not only had his life been marked by regular let's be generous, questionable behavior by his allies. But also, the last time he let Asser out of his sight, the monk vanished for over a year. And that absence from the court of Wessex very well might have been permanent had Alfred not gone all crazy X and sent messengers out to find him. So looking at all of this, 
looking at the months of delay and the last-minute avalanche of gifts, it seems to me there's one very obvious cause. Alfred was worried that by letting Asser leave, he would lose his tutor and likely his friend. And he was doing everything he could to prevent that. Please, 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 please. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>